Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Matt. So great to see your smiling face. Look, Sherry, Catherine's with us. That's awesome. I'm here. To our Intoxicated Podcast listeners, we have a real special treat for you today. We are joined live. Well, it won't be live when you're listening to it. (laughs) So far, we're off to a good start. Uh, We're joined by Catherine Craig, a good friend of mine, good friend of ours. Catherine is a licensed specialist clinical social worker and also a thousand hour yoga teacher. And she's here to lay some knowledge on us. Uh, Catherine works at the uh, Florence Crittenton Services, and they are about to open a brand spanking new Florence Crittenton Interactive Health Center that Catherine is an integral part of in all facets. Like with many small businesses, I happen to know Catherine has done some painting of the new facility. So it's not just her therapeutic expertise, but all hands on deck for getting that place up and going. Thanks for being here, Catherine. Thank you. And I, I do get to correct you right away, man. This just makes my whole day. Um, <laughs> but it's Integrative, Integrative Wellness Center. Did I say Interactive? Yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know what you said, but that it's Integrative, which I, I, it's just one of those words. I don't even know what it means exactly. Well, I was focused on pronouncing Crittenton right so hard that I just didn't even look at the rest of my notes. I love it. I but love we it. Got- all right. Well, so what we want to do today, Catherine's going to share some some really important stuff with us about trauma, about healing from trauma, about how that relates to being in an alcoholic marriage, some stuff that Sherry and I have struggled mightily with. And frankly, um, I've known Catherine for about two years now, and she's been super helpful in our relationship, just, just giving us advice and talking stuff through on the phone. And we're going to get there. But before we do, we want to get a little bit personal for a second, Catherine. You have, in addition to working in in this field in therapy uh, and helping others, you have also had a bit of a journey yourself. You are almost two years sober now. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's pretty fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about how alcohol impacted, you know, not just your life, but I want to hear about your life too, but your relationships. How was alcohol, um, you know, kind of ever present there for you and what impact was it having for you? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think I'm learning every day. I, you know, two years seems like a long time. It's really not. As you keep telling us, Matt, it takes time. So I think I'm, I think that's what I'm learning every day is that, uh, more about the relationship aspect. Um, so if, if I were just going to respond to that relationship aspect, um, I can tell you that alcohol really kept me from being able to be who, be me. Um, and so I, I was kind of living a lie in a lot of ways and living, um, living scared, living in fear, responding in ways that aren't me. Um, and so uh, really stopping drinking just allowed me to be myself or figure out who that is. I will say that I am still figuring that out and I'm still figuring out what how to do relationships um with this kind of new person that I am so it's it's hard um but I love it I love the freedom of being me it's much more I can tell you I'm much more happy (laughs) um but but it's a work in progress as you always tell us and we tell everybody you know in the group that um or that we encounter that it takes time and there's no there this isn't about the end product this is about the journey and so I'm I'm okay which I'm not always okay with where I'm at like I would super love to have a a man in my life right or something like that um but I'm really I I it's a it is what it is and this is this is it and I I am a lot better for being sober I can tell you that you know when when I was drinking I had alcohol like woven into my identity like yeah. I didn't drink, but I was proud of what I drank and how I could drink. 
And then when that was gone, you, you made me think of this with something you just said. It, I really had to kind of re, I don't want to say reinvent myself because that's really cliche, right? But it, it, it kind of is that way. I had to like re rebirth with myself. I had to yeah. figure out who I was. And that part, it is terrifying. It is hard, as you said. But is that a little bit exciting for you too to to be like, who is the? I, you know, I'm I'm almost halfway through my life, and who am I? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think everything we're going to talk about today is as terrifying as it can be. I think there's this nagging um, under knowing that we're on the right path. It may be hard, um, and it and it this it is, but there is a level of knowing and freedom. Um, but boy, in those moments, it's hard to find sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing a little bit about your personal story. We might come back to that as we go through the discussion. Absolutely. I want to talk, talk a little bit about, um, before we get to the direct impacts of, you know, the trauma that we experience in an alcoholic marriage that's directly related to the alcohol of the drinker in the marriage, this all, I think, and I, I think you'll agree, starts way earlier than that. One of the things that I've learned in this process of recovery and discovery over the last few years is how impactful our childhoods are on our adulthoods. And if you had told me that five years ago, I would just wouldn't have believed you. I thought you were kooky because I, you know, I had a good childhood. I had a stable family. But mm -hmm. even in those situations, even with two loving parents, there are things that happen that we carry with us into adulthood. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? What, what, um, what's that all about with, and does it, does it take, like, do you have to be sexually molested for you to carry trauma into your adulthood from your childhood? Or is that something everyone experiences? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's kind of cliche. I hate to be the therapist that's taking you back to your childhood. Um, how cliche, but uh, it really is everything but not in the ways that we, that you may think, um, you know, and I will say disclaimer, I come from a place um, of a lens of attachment and trauma. So that is what we specialize in. And, and so that's the lens I see the world through in a lot of ways. But um, I think our early child, I mean, research is telling us that our early childhood experiences really have a profound effect on our health. And we're going to, I hope I really bring this home point, this point really home to you at some point, um, but on our health and mental health, it is our health. So a lot of people think, oh, um, depression, anxiety, you know, relationship issues. Um, but really actually what I'm going to tell you about um, soon is about how it affects your health, your immune system, um, your, I mean, all the systems in your, your the brain structure, your, your, your DNA, um, the, the epigenome. Um, so we're going to talk about that, hopefully. But yes, um, it has a profound effect. Talk a little bit about the, I've heard this terminology, uh, the acronym is ACE, A-C-E, Adver Adverse Childhood Experiences. I think I pronounced all those words right. You did. Luckily, integrative wasn't in there anywhere so for me to hatch it. That's hilarious. What's that all about? So, you know, um, to me, this study is everything. Uh, I want to be a huge um, voice for the ACE study. Go, go look it up, Google it right now. Um, don't listen to me. Just, just go look it up. Um, you like turn the podcast off? <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not. Wait. When you finish listening to us, Google so, it. So, so the ACE um, study really is a it's a study that was done um, in California. It's one of the largest studies that's been done, but it, it, it has a list of 10 questions. Um, but basically, um, it's, a, it's a huge predictor of uh, health outcomes in adulthood. So again, not just mental health outcomes, but it's a predictor of health outcomes, your nervous system, your cardiovascular, heart disease, stroke, um, your endocrine, your immune system, the list goes on and on. Um, just to give you an example, um, with this ACE, 67% uh, of people have at least one ACE um, of the population. 13% have four or more ACEs. Um, your mortality rate, you are, you are, uh, is affected by your ACE, your mortality rate. You might, uh, you have a, a lifespan that has, is the risk of being 20 years less 
um, just based on your ACEs. This is a screening that really should be done in every office that you help uh, your primary care physician that you go into, because it's a predictor of your health outcomes in adulthood, so, shockingly. So uh, I'm not gonna put you on the spot to reel off all 10, and we will, we'll put a link to the study in the show notes, but can you, can you give us a few examples? What, what is one of the ACE indicators or, or a few of them? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's your, it's your, what, what we might consider very intuitive. I mean, your, it's your emotional, physical, sexual abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, substance abuse in the home, anyone who had anxiety or depression or mental illness in the home, um, witnessing violence specifically with the mother, um, divorce or parental separation, and any um, kind of criminal behavior in the household or um, but I will tell you, I think that we're going to learn more and more. Um, so what they're calling, it's your adverse childhood effects, right? But what I think we're learning, though, is that attachment, you know, plays a part of all of those things. Um, your, how you how you attached, um, your, you know, really leads to your, your attachment style in adulthood. Um, so attachment plays a part of that. Our life, our modern life right now, um, and how stressed we are. I think is really adding. So, so that while the ACE study is hugely important, I also think we have to layer in um, toxic stress from our lifestyles. Um, so we have an epidemic of toxic stress is how I see it. So it's coming from, sure, it's coming from um, childhood. It's coming from our attachment issues. It's also coming from our lifestyles right now, in my opinion. When you were talking about, you know, some the, the ACE indicators, the ACE things, um, yes. substance abuse was on your list. Obviously that's something that many of our listeners experienced as children. Yeah. Also, you know, continue to experience as, as adults, if they're in an alcoholic marriage, otherwise they wouldn't be here. Um, so that's one that's got to be hugely common amongst our listeners. Neglect is an interesting one because I think that, and, and I want to hear your opinion, but I think that can take on you know, there's, there's the obvious neglect, like you were left at home by yourself all the time, but there's a lot more subtle ways uh, to look at that. And, and maybe neglect isn't the right word, but I know, I think um, it's the word. I read a lot about, you know, kids that just, they grow up in a household with two parents and there's stability and economic stability and there's food and clothes and friends, but they just, there's no hugs. There's no physical touch. Um, that can manifest in a, in a bad way, attachment style wise and, and or, or however into our adulthood, right? I mean, isn't that a part of it? Would you call that neglect? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that is a huge part of what I do is, and it's really the hardest part because, you know, people come in and again, oh, my needs were met in childhood. We're, we're really, you know, trained to say my needs were met, but we're not looking at absolutely our emotional needs. Um, and th that has a profound effect on um, how, what we're going to talk about is our nervous system, basically. But it's, it's this, uh, this feeling of safety um, that we were seen and heard and that our needs were predictably met, um, reliably, predictably um, met in childhood. Um, it gives our, us a feeling of uh, feeling that our world is safe. Um, when we don't have that, we grow up kind of with a an overactivated nervous system that where where we really um, uh, you know kind of have this backup system. Our mind can go offline very very quickly, and we kind of have uh, act out of fear and very reactive because we don't have a, that that baseline um, during our childhood of feeling safe, nurtured, um, attuned, um, all of those things. So yes, I think it's absolutely huge, but hard to convince people of. I'm just kind of wondering, like, at the beginning of this um, COVID pandemic, I thought about all those kids that are staying at home and yeah. their parents working, and I wonder how this is going to play out. I know we're starting to talk about how children are being affected, but just the neglect of the parents are doing so much, they're stressed. And even though, yeah, your parents were able to stay home, you weren't getting the attention and the love and the support that you needed. So I know I'm kind of planting a, a timely issue in this well, podcast. Well, no, I think, I think it is. I, I think just, you're right. All these kids that are being neglected, and we live in a nice neighborhood, and I thought, oh, I bet there are so many kids neglected in our neighborhood of these 
dual income working parents that are even just like shipping the kids off to sports camps and babysitters and nannies and summer camps away, like just kind of pushing off the responsibility of child rearing onto other people. Does that somehow like connect to your nervous attachment when you're an adult? Uh, You know, what would, yes, what, yes, what the studies will say is that you need one, one uh, relationship that acts as that buffering agent with the, that creates that sense of safety. Um, Usually that's a parent. Um, It's not always a parent, um, but that is the protective factor. Um, So even with ACEs, um, what your ACE is, having that one buffering adult in your life is going to uh, give you that, that protect, that protective factor. Um, So yeah, I have concerns about the whole uh, of what, what the outcomes will be with COVID. I absolutely do. Um, You know, to add what you just said, they're also out there on the playground. And again, this is how we metabolize nerve, uh, you know, a lot of these um, over, overactive um, nervous system is, is out there on the playground, you know, through connection with other people. These are the ways that we metabolize, you know, these, um, these hormones that are raging through our body out of, out of our nervous system. So I, you know, yes, the answer is yes. I think there's going to be, I have huge concerns about that and what, what we've done and no fault of our own. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up the playground. I, you know, I, I definitely don't want to make this a political discussion, but I get so frustrated by when we talk about the health concerns of the pandemic Right. For most people, they're only talking about the virus. And there are equal, if not more, serious health threats in, in other aspects of, uh, yeah, kids sitting in, at home in their room with the door shut for seven hours a day on Zoom with no interaction. Um, so I'm, I'm so glad you brought up a playground. It's, it's not like we're treating it like it's an afterthought, like it's a, it's a minor secondary thing. But for people like Sherry and I who've lived through um, you know, trying to, trying to recover from something and realized how these experiences have impacted us. And then, then we see how dramatically these, this current generation is, is going through it and, you know, no blame. We don't want to put any blame or shame on anybody, but, you know, Sherry mentioned all these people, they're working hard, they're stressed, they're doing the best they can. They think their kids are home. So they're at least in a protected environment, but, you know, it's, it's it's like it's hiding in plain sight. You know the damage that we're doing is is hiding in plain sight. Okay, so so yes, so I want to. So it's hiding in plain sight. That's exactly how I feel. With it's kind of the same metaphor in families. So no fault of people's uh, of their own. Um, we have the same parallel process kind of in families where um, they're doing the best they can. Everybody's doing the best they can. I as a parent did the best I could um, with my children, but you know circumstances and my childhood and the things that I was carrying from my, my childhood really um, affected the way I parented, uh, profoundly affected, uh, no fault of my own. Um, but I, I can now see um, a lot of the damage that was done, you know, and there are, there are corrective things, but, but that's, that's painful to see. And so it's, I think it's the same thing you're talking about on this bigger picture with COVID is the same thing that's happening in our families. And we have to learn not to place blame. We have to learn to really have compassion for ourselves and others. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No blame at all. Um, I want to I wanna do a little case study on, uh, oh, me. Are you, uh, you going to use yourself? Yeah. You That's perfect. That's perfect. I don't like to do research and have to like, so I just throw myself out there because perfect. that's. Perfect. I like it. But I no, know you. I had one of those, you know, typically a really good childhood. There was enough of everything, two uh, stayed together parents, um, you know, nothing that you could outwardly view as uh, probably being on the ACE list. But I, you know, I think I think I hit some of the ACE markers in, in a more subtle way. One of them that's come to light as I parent now, I've got teenage kids. And the oldest is a girl, and then the next three are boys. And one of the things I noticed about myself was I'm always kind of fawning over the girl and being protective of the girl. 
I think pretty typical father behavior with the girl. And then the boys, I'm teasing them and, you know, punching them in the arm and yeah, toughening them up. <laughs> and I, you know, I can, I, I, if I think hard enough, I can trace that back to that's what it was like. I grew up with a sister, just the two of us. And I feel like my sister got, you know, that kind of protective shield and I got teased a lot. Never thought for a second there was anything wrong with that or that it, that it was bad in any way. But as I see myself playing the same role and, and treating the girl kid differently than the boy kids, um, it, it, makes me, it makes me wonder if I'm impacting like their attachment style. Um, you're, you're nodding, so I think you're following where I'm going. Can, can you talk a little bit about this? Like, because I'm now I'm making these weird, awkward, it feels super weird and awkward efforts to hug my boys all the time. And yeah. they're all, what are you doing? Like, get <laughs> off of me. <laughs> Our oldest son, I'll say this real quick. He's now taller than me, but he's still, when he comes in for a hug, he goes like below my arms and I go above. Yeah. But so he has to bend down to hug me that way now. And I won't, I won't ever change that. Like I come in high, even though I got to reach up to come in high because I still want to think of him that way. But if I'm not careful, he gets his shoulder into my Adam's apple and it hurts so bad. So it's dangerous <laughs> to hug him now. But I'm constantly trying to hug my boys because I'm trying to make up for this just kind of teasing relationship. Is this, is this common? Am I a freak show? Are there attachment issues here? Am I making this all up in my head? Help me, Catherine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been trying, Matt, for, for two years. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad you're looking at that. That's absolutely attunement. You know, that's the number one um, part of attachment is attuning. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, there's this, um, you know, my daughter teaches me so much, but this on TikTok now is the thing is this toxic masculinity, you know, right. and and so I think what you, I, I feel, I feel really bad for, for, I think it is changing, but I feel bad for, for males because I do think um, we've obviously sent the message. And I think that's what you're kind of regretting in some ways is sending this message of uh, really um, they have to be stronger. They have to really, uh, uh, they don't get these benefit of these relationship relational, you know, um, aspects that really um, soothe our nervous system, by the way, relational, that attunement, those hugs, those are all relational ways of, of managing and metabolizing, you know, stress. So, so I think you're right to point out that, I mean, not, again, we don't place blame. We just look at the sooner you understand um, how your, how the way you were raised affected you, um, the sooner you can start making those course corrections. But I love that you're, you're now uh, introducing, you're building your, I call it building your window of tolerance. You know, um, we're doing things that are uncomfortable. We have to keep doing that. Um, not comfortable for you, but I love that you're doing it. Especially not comfortable when I get the shoulder and the Adam's apple. <laughs> yeah, the shoulder and the Adam's apple. Absolutely. You know, I know we're, we're I can see it coming, but. So but yes, yeah, definitely. I, I think that's why I, I stress so much how important it is. And, you know, I've always wanted to get you in my office just so we could look at that, that upbringing that you say, you know, you have, oh, I'm going to find a crack in it because, because, uh, because it's really important. You know, we can't, the minute someone comes in my office and says, oh, my needs were met. I, um, you know, I had this, just what you said, the shelter, the food, the, uh, it's a red flag to me because we really are denying that our emotional needs are important. Um, and in fact, the opposite is true. Um, it's every bit as destructive when we don't get our emotional needs met um, because we will keep trying to get them met in, in adulthood. Everything um, is about how we get our needs met. Um, and so the sooner we start understanding our needs and being able to put a voice to those um, and being vulnerable to get those needs met, you know, that's, that's living kind of authentically. I love that you talked about that we will keep trying to get our needs met in adulthood. Okay, mm -hmm. let's talk about how when we've got some of these ACE indicators and, you know, our, our attachment style is one way or the other, when we're trying to get our needs met in adulthood, how can that manifest? How does that impact our relationships? How does that 
make us miserable 40 somethings like many, many people are. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot to lay on you there, but what are your thoughts? Uh, uh, that, okay, so what I will say is that I think we keep wanting to project, um, especially with kind of the some of these um, ACEs, uh, we keep looking to, uh, because we're the five-year-old, looking to um, all these external sources to help us, um, you know, soothe and, and to feel important and feel loved and feel cared about. Um, so this attunement that we didn't get or this, you know, love, nurturing, um, I think we, we continue in adulthood to look to all these external sources, um, whether that's drugs, alcohol, sex, people, relationships, placing demands on, on, on partners that, you know, they can't um, produce. And even if they could, we couldn't see it. That's the, that's the problem is that sometimes even when we get what we want or what we thought we wanted, um, we, we can't even, uh, we don't even have the ability to, to recognize it or, or take it in. We have to learn to be able to do these things for ourselves and do them in relationships. It's both um, to, to really be kind of uh, an adult <laughs> and not the five-year-old adult, the six-year-old adult. Ten, we do a lot of inner child work uh, with, you know, where we really look at these needs that we didn't get met in, when we were five, seven, two. Um, we, we really start being our best protectors, our best nurturers, our best parents, um, and really start to learn to, to soothe ourselves. Um, and then to, and then to allow other people um, to to be there for us also. So those are two kind of critical aspects I think in adulthood. Can you give us an example of a situation where someone would uh, have? I think what you said was have what they needed but not even recognize it. Is that what is that what you said? Like mm -hmm. they've reached where they're trying to get but they don't know it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, how many, I, I call it the validation wars um, with couples, you know, they're in, they're, uh, they're so looking to other people to validate them, you mm. know, and, and then when they get validated, they don't see it. Um, it's not enough. Um, nothing's ever enough unless we can really um, take it in and, and really feel it within ourselves, you know, and, and see that we are loved that, you know, because we love ourselves, that we are important because we think we are important, um, that we're worthy um, human, human beings. When we can feel that, then we can kind of uh, see that other people are treating us as worthy, important, and they're loving us all the time. But boy, can we not see it when we, when we, we aren't that, you know, we can't, we can't just even grasp those things, I don't think, very easily. So it, it starts out as a dis deficiency from our childhood, something that we didn't get enough of somehow. And then we're looking for someone, you use the word validate, which I love. We also talk a lot about, uh, we're looking for external stuff, right? To fill our internal needs. Correct, right. We attach to somebody, we find a, a girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, and we're expecting them to, I'm going to use all the cliches. We're expecting them to fill the bucket, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, the bucket has a endless black hole. Sherry's laughing at you. She's just laughing at me, <laughs> uh, not, which is not uncommon. Um, but so... When we, Do you guys talk about your buckets a lot? Is that why you're laughing? Uh, he does. He talks about his bucket. Okay. <laughs> just a few months ago, and we talked about that on here. The old bucket had a broken handle, so somehow that means it's done. We got to get a new bucket. <laughs> you know, one of those big financial uh, purchases that we that we argue about in marriages. You know, what was it? Eight dollars. Eight dollars. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's always there. Yeah. My maturity level is really something to be aspired to by all. <laughs> but we're looking for externals to fill the internals, and until we use our our little internals, we'll never. We'll never get there. So is that a big, like, is that step one when someone comes to see you? Let's, let's look like, are you constantly looking for the thing that's missing internally and working with that person? How can you fill that internally? Because once they do that, then growth can occur elsewhere in life. Like, am I describing that right? Yeah. I mean, I, that's, it's a very difficult sell though, because um, I think we put so much, like, especially in relationships that if, if, you know, there's this, 
is so fear driven that if I meet my needs, then then he, then my, he will never meet my needs or she will never meet my needs or this relationship will cease to exist because I won't need them anymore. Um, there's just a lot of fear there. Um, you know, we unfortunately have this false sense of, of control that we can, you know, control other people when really that's just not true. Um, people can't you know, I can't make you meet my needs. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's a very, it's a definitely where we start, but it's a, you know, I think it's because people find each other who have, you know, you know, probably aces, you know, in a lot, in a lot of ways, um, especially for like the alcoholic family, um, or partnership, it's so easy to say that the alcohol is the problem and to really ignore our own, um, needs our own issues, um, put a voice to those. If they get sober, our marriage will, and you know this, if they get sober, our marriage will be uh, what I want it to be, what I need it to be. And of course, then that happens. And in fact, it just uh, doesn't, opens a whole nother can of worms. I still have to look at myself. I still have to meet my own needs. Um, they weren't put on this earth to meet my needs. You know, I have to do that for myself. And also in relationship, it's both. Yeah, I mean, we always tell people through our experience and all the people that we work with now, uh, this is a universalism. This is 100% of the time. Sobriety doesn't fix anything, but it is a prerequisite. You have to get the alcohol out of the way so that you can work on all that other stuff. Um, so I totally agree with you. I think the similarities between what you're talking about and de detachment in an alcoholic relationship are really interesting. We're afraid, you just said, as humans, to meet our own needs because then the person we're with won't have any incentive to meet our needs or might find us unattractive or might move on. It's, it's so interesting. In an alcoholic relationship where, especially where the alcohol is still present, the necessity to detach for the loved one and to work on themselves, to take care of themselves, to take care of the kids, if there are kids, to um, really focus on their own health and healing, people are so afraid that if they detach from the alcoholic, then the relationship will be over. But what we found over and over, and it certainly was the case for us, as soon as Sherry detached, that was a wake-up call for me. Like, oh, she doesn't need me anymore. She's kind of moving on. It was actually all, all the time she spent trying to convince me to get sober, none of that worked. But when she kind of pulled away from me, whoa, sobriety all of a sudden seemed like a pretty good idea because I realized what I was about to lose. And I feel like the same thing happens with what you're talking about. When we fill our own buckets and we don't wait for someone else to do it, I think, and I'm interested in your opinion, we almost, we become more attractive to that person because we're self-sustaining and we're, we're not a crying puddle and we're, you know, we're not nagging. We're not any of the negatives. We're, we're all of a sudden, we're confident. Is that your experience? Yeah, definitely. But I think it, it's a very, uh, I would say, yes, absolutely. But there's also, it's very deep in, in that we, people, you know, the, what you're describing kind of is someone who, who needs to fix, fix it, right? Because their world's not, again, I'm going to bring it back to attachment. Their world's not safe because they probably have some chaos growing up. Their world's not safe if, 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 you're, if this person isn't fixed. Um, so it's a pretty hard sell. Because I don't feel safe if you're not fixed, um, but I don't mm -hmm. feel safe with you anyway because you're an alcoholic. Um, but to convince someone that they, um, it's a very powerless feeling to to convince someone that they have within themselves, you know, and they they kind of have this uh, learned helplessness, you know, in a lot of ways. They don't know their own power. They don't know their own strength. They don't feel safety within themselves. Um, so therefore, they're trying to control the shit out of everybody else around them. Um, to fix them, to try to convince them otherwise is a very difficult sell. But yes, a very paradoxical effect that when we stop, when we let go, in fact, is when change can occur. I also think it occur, can occur like that because then we can have compassion. If my safety isn't dependent on you and I have it within myself and I'm like filling my bucket, let's say, then I can really have a, a level of detachment that I can have compassion for you. We know that change really can't occur in a state of resentment and anger and frustration and, um, you know, de demands. It, it just can't. Um, 
it really has to be out of compassion. We have to allow people to be themselves and, 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 and go down their own path. We want, I always say, use the visual of sitting beside someone. Uh, we want to sit beside someone. We can't be pulling them along. If we are, it, it's just a false sense of control. It's, you, you're living in a fantasy. Um, we have to just, you know, get down to what we can control. Be very clear about that. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. And you're right about the paradox. But, but this whole thing, I, I think certainly alcoholism and recovery from alcoholism, but I think on a broader sense, just life is just full of paradoxes. Yes. About alcohol. You know, we drink to soothe our anxiety and our depression, not realizing it's the alcohol that's causing the anxiety and depression. Right, and right. As a codependent, you know, we run around trying to fix everyone not realizing that if we just focus on ourselves and let them be, it'll actually improve not only our situation, but might improve the relationship as well. And it's, yes. say it's hard. It's, it's a hard, I, I, I never thought of it this way. I'm glad that you're, you're talking about this. I never thought of how much of your job, how much of people in your field, you, you got to convince the people about what the the real the root root cause of the problem is well, before you what, start working on it, right? They, here's what I, I I think I remember telling you this one time. Um, Sherry chose you. You know, there's a reason for that. I you know I I don't not to use your situation, but but I chose my husband. Um, and the reason I did that was because I didn't have to look at myself. He could I could constantly be putting my focus and blame on someone else. So asking someone to look at themselves is really asking them to turn inward into some very painful, painful issues that um, they probably haven't, haven't, you know, wanted to look at. So that's why it's doubly difficult. You know, they're out there trying to fix someone else, but then also my pain is really, this is a, this is a great avoidance tool. You know, <laughs> marrying an alcoholic is a great avoidance tool. <laughs> wow. That is profound. Very interesting. So, okay. I think this is going to fit right in with the conversation. So a lot of the loved ones of alcoholics, the spouses of alcoholics that we talk to, they want to downplay their trauma. For some, certainly there has been sexual abuse in, in either in that relationship or in their childhood. There's been physical abuse. There's been the, what we, what we think of when we talk about trauma and we hear the dun dun of <laughs> that kind of trauma but i but the first thing we hear from people often is yes i'm married to an alcoholic but you know he's high functioning and he provides for the family so why am i so beaten down why do i feel so bad it's really not that bad it could be a lot worse do you find that often that people want to excuse away their their situation as not being trauma when really you know we need to we need to treat it seriously whether it's you know, worthy of a special victims unit episode or not. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And in that sense, I'm not, I'm going to start where someone's at. I'm going to look at this again. Let's go back to just toxic stress um, and how that affects the nervous system. I'm going to go back to, because it's all the same, all roads lead to Rome. Um, you know, I don't have to get in your business, you know, down deep uh, if that's not where you want to go. I, you know, we can just look at how are your needs being met right now? How is stress um, affecting you, but yeah, there's absolute, which once they get to understanding some of their own reactions and pat, they're, they're, everybody's going to be thinking of their patterns. Oh, well that came from, oh, okay. So you mean, you remember why you started doing that? You know, uh, so honestly, everybody's sort of inquisitive about themselves. We're curious human beings and we want to understand this. I mean, what's that saying that we all of our adulthood is trying to recover from our childhood, you know, and it's really kind of true for a lot of us. Um, but I think there's a natural, if you meet resistance, you know, it usually dissolves when you really actually give people what they need, you know, what they want. And that is, you know, usually it's just, uh, again, validation, you know, yeah. start there but yeah I, I feel you on the resistance well speaking of giving people what they want speaking of meeting people's needs for you and your practice when you're dealing with with patients and trying to help people through this stuff I'm sure you just recommend seven or eight pharmaceuticals and say just go take all 
That's sure. Percent. No, yeah. I don't. Okay. What are what what can we be doing to heal from from ACE? What can we be doing to to deal with our attachment stuff and our trauma and our our relationship issues? Help us. What what suggestions do you have? All right. Well, that is a that is a great question. There are researches, by the way, blowing up when it comes to regulating our nervous system. Um, it is it is come so far. It is really uh, going leaps and bounds. Is what led me to become a yoga yoga instructor because I realized therapy talk therapy is really not you know necessarily all that effective. Uh, truth be told for a lot of the issues that we're talking about, for regulating nervous systems, it's really not. That's called what we call a top-down approach. Um, but really sometimes what we need is a bottom-up approach, a more body-based approach. So that's why what kind of led me to become a yoga instructor. Um, but our what we're looking at is based on um, Nadine Burke. It's the ACE study. She took the ACE study and she uh, really created a protocol around it so Nadine Burke-Harris, you've probably seen her in a TED talk about the ACE study. I highly recommend it. It will explain your nervous system and why, why the ACE is so important. Um, but then she developed a protocol around it. So she has seven areas that really um, are what she says will help balance the nervous system. I'm going to just list them for you. Um, sleep, um, movement or exercise, but I, I like to say movement. Uh, nutrition, meditation, or mindfulness is really what we say, mindfulness, uh, mental health, um, integration or treatment, time outdoors, and supportive rela relationships. So those are, are, those are the, the seven areas that, that we will be focusing on in our wellness center. Um, and definitely what I focus on, the way I started helping people with trauma doesn't look anything like what I do now literally nothing. I mean, so, which is exciting. Because you started um, heavy on talk therapy and, and didn't. Right. Which, which talk therapy, it, you know, can't reach the, the parts of the brain. Um, when, it, when you're looking at uh, some of the attachment and trauma issues, um, because the way uh, trauma is encoded in the brain uh, isn't, isn't accessible. Um, so yeah, you have to do it a different way. It's pretty cool stuff, actually. Um, yeah, but those are those are kind of the areas, uh, and doing and doing both a bottom a bottom down and a top up approach. At this, you kind of need both. It it's really interesting that you know everything that you listed, all seven. Mm -hmm. That I think certainly anyone that's uh, forty five minutes into a podcast about alcoholism recovery has done enough research and enough work on themselves or research about how to do work on themselves at least to be familiar with these kinds of things. <clears throat> Pardon me. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I think meditation and mindfulness gets kind of a bad rap. It, you know, you picture someone just sitting, staring in the corner for an oh, hour. Right, right, right. If you're not willing to do that, then you're not doing it right. But I know right. we've talked in the past about mindfulness breathing and just, it can be way more simple. It, you don't have to turn your life upside down to start practicing something like this, correct? No, not at all. In fact, I would say the majority of the practice I do um, really is very brief and frequent. Um, and I, I, that's as effective. I don't know very many people who have the um, inclination or aptitude to, to do, do a 20 minute sit. Great if you do, um, but these smaller practices. So the, the reason is, and I really want to bring this home before we, before we end is our brains, you know, it is adaptive. When you see the bear in the woods, you know, our, our bodies and our brains are supposed to remember. We're supposed to remember pain more than pleasure. You know, that is our body's job. It becomes maladaptive when we have an overactive nervous system through either trauma, attachment, or toxic stress in our lives. So it becomes very maladaptive. Um, so the, the good news is that research is telling us that this negative bias of the brain, we really have... So I go hard at managing my nervous system because you have to. And I really want that to be the message. And that's all of us. We need to go hard um, at managing that. I don't care about your ACEs even. Go hard at managing your nervous system and managing toxic stress. Um, it says the research is saying there's a highly recommend Rick Hansen. He is a, um, 
books out, wonderful, wonderful uh, researcher. And he, what he's putting out there is um, that our, it's called neuroplasticity, but we can change these patterns and we can work um, to kind of make positive neural connections, um, experience dependent positive neural connections. So that's the good news, but we have to do it. It's like anything. We might know about it, but we might, but we need to do it. We do need to do spend five to do the take five breathing, five full breaths, you know, several times a day. We need to be taking in the good. Um, three, it says six times a day. We're supposed to stop, uh, take in, feel it in your body, take in some, a positive fact, take it in, experience it, meaning close your eyes, breathe. Uh, get in all the, take in all the details, the, all the sense, of, the sense of it, try to relive it, intensify that feeling. Um, and then let that sink into you. Let that feeling, that good fact sink in. So it could be a 30 second process. It could be a five minute meditation of those three steps, uh, taking in the good, but those, those are powerful practices that we need to be doing. Gotta go hard at, at counteracting that negative bias that we, that we already have. Was that kind of an answer to your question? I love that. Easy, it's easy, but we've got to go hard. Yeah. Um, that, that's that's excellent because, um, you, you know, so you said like five breaths, right? Right. Just just five mindful, deep, full breaths. Do that right. say five times a day. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I take five. I call it take five breathing, but do it as many times a day as you can. I, one time a day. I started. When I started, all I could manage was to turn off the radio and, and at a stoplight, get a full breath in. I probably did that for a year. Um, so, you know, I'll take whatever, whatever anybody can do. Um, but, but yeah, they say, but the research says, if you're asking me the research, six times a day, taking in, taking in the good will be that um, counterbalance to that negative bias. That's where we're rewiring the brain for positive experiences positive emotions, positive thoughts. So I think this is so important because everything on this list of seven, these are, these are the kinds of things, I mean, historically, these are the kinds of things we approach, uh, like exercise movement is one of the things on your list, but that, that's one I think everyone can relate to. We all know we're supposed to exercise, but when it comes time to putting on our shoes, and going out and taking that walk or doing that jog or riding your bike or doing yoga or whatever it is, we can always find an excuse for why we're not going to do it. Right. And, and then we, but we just don't, you know, if somebody says you've got to take this pill twice a day, every day, we're going to find a way to do that because we understand that that's what's been prescribed and it's important. We devalue the importance of these of things like that are on this list of seven so easily in this culture. I, I, I just I'm glad that you're driving this home. I think it's very it's but, fascinating that we talk about how um, it's it's easy, but you've got to actually do it. Right, and and but I think if we understood the links to our health, based you know that are that are linked to stress, if we understood that the asthma in our kid that that our thyroid issue that our constipation constipation that's one question i ask that's a red flag for a nervous system um you know all that our immune all the autoimmune issues that we have um the heart disease the strokes um all of these things are linking to child adverse childhood effects one and, and toxic stress so i think if we understood it better that we're not going out to exercise just so we can um keep up with our neighbor and how we look, you know, that we're actually doing it to, again, metabolize um, and balance our nervous system. You know, I, I think if we understood that, in fact, we're um, gonna live longer, that we're, you know, that we have um, some real risk factors based on our childhood. Um, and we need to counterbalance that by actively working to, to manage our nervous system. I, I think things might change a little. Well, I couldn't agree more, especially we've got to set the goal correctly. If, right. if we're going out and running three miles a day and yeah. losing weight, it's really easy to say, well, screw this. It's not working and not appreciate all the, the myriad, like really important benefits that it's having. That's, but all we want to know is, are we losing weight or not when we're, when we're exercising? Right, right. 
Exactly. That's why I want to give people the why. I want to fully help you fully understand the why. Um, and the minute you look into the ACE and you understand the health outcomes and, oh, and it starts to make sense. It's, I mean, I ticked off, oh, I had fertility issues. Wow, that's ACE. You know, mm -hmm. I had hypothyroidism, ACE. I had anxiety, ACE. I had depression, ACE. I, I mean, I had Raynaud's syndrome and autoimmune disease, ACE. You know, I didn't know that. I was, you know, I, I can't imagine how many, how much dollars have been spent in my healthcare based on my ACEs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's right. We got, we absolutely have to get the word out. I got an email just yesterday from a woman who was describing her alcoholic marriage and the situation and at the very end, the last little part she put in there was, oh, and I've had to quit work because I've got all these physical yeah. ailments. And just at the very end, she said, I think they might be stress related. Well, you know, that's, that's the problem, right? We don't, we don't go to that first. We don't recognize, yes, of course it's stress related. It's one, yeah. all of these things you're battling improve this horribly stressful situation you're in and these will get better. Don't go to pharmaceuticals. I mean, right. I, I have to be careful, right? Of course, pharmaceuticals are important in their uses, but they shouldn't just be the knee-jerk first thing we go to when we can fix the situations in our lives that are causing these, like you said, it's not just mental health, it's physical ailments. Um, that is so, so, so important. I'm, I'm really glad that you're driving that home. Well, yeah, thank you. And, and, and especially alcohol-related, the, the other thing I, I would drive home is, you know how you say it's the alcohol, stupid? Yeah. I would, I would really take that further and, and say, it's the ace, stupid. Um, you know, I would really widen that lens because, um, because of that, those dopamine receptors, um, it is completely affected by stress. Our dopamine re receptors and our, uh, are bent towards these things, um, that will, that will bring us, you know, seemingly bring, bring us pleasure. So, I mean, so for those of us who have been out there, you know, uh, those were also related to ACE, ACEs. You know, our, it, it was the stress in our system that was changing, biochemically changing us and, and uh, getting us out there craving these things that we thought were bringing us pleasure. So that, I mean, it's, it's, that's how big it is, in my opinion. Yeah, well, you know, I was already convinced, but now I'm much even more convinced. You're absolutely right. And again, for, for our listeners, we, we, defined it once, but we've been using the acronym for quite a while now. ACE is Adverse Childhood uh, Experiences. And we will put a link to that study in the show notes for anyone to check out. To wrap up today, Catherine, I, I want to talk about, uh, you know, alcohol is a really bad coping mechanism. And a lot of people like to divide the population into two segments, right? alcoholics and non-alcoholics. And for alcoholics, we all know alcohol is a bad coping mechanism. It's causing all kinds of damage in our lives. It's a terrible thing. But alcohol is a bad coping mechanism for non-alcoholics too. And, you know, when we talk about these seven things, sleep, movement, nutrition, getting outdoors, oh my God, how important is getting outdoors, especially during this pandemic, and I think that's one of the easiest ones on your list for people to go, oh, yeah, I know I should get outdoors, but you know, I've got this report due for work, so I'm going to just sit in my hole and work on that instead. I don't yeah. think we, we, we really um, put, put you know, we, we know that it's good for us, but then we don't do it anyway. Um, so all these things are good, but alcohol is bad as a coping mechanism. And it's not just the alcoholic, it's, it's the, as they call them, the normies too. Mm -hmm. um, it limits our ability to grow, to grow. And I want to turn it back to your experience. Now that you've got alcohol out of the way, how much easier is it to manage your nervous system and to, to grow toward your goals and to, to do the things that alcohol was limiting in your life um, back when it was a regular part of your, your, you know, your daily routine? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I think that really actually reflects um, every part of what we're talking about, because, you know, you and I see alcohol as a poison in our body. But if we just look at how anything that goes in our body that doesn't belong, you know, again, do you think that's going to raise, you know, going to have a, a nervous effect system? Our body's going to be on, um, our alarms are going to start going off. Um, and 
you know, we all, and there's so many little layers of that. I mean, we're, we're looking at how it affects our bodies as far as, I mean, every layer, sleep, the nervous system, I mean, all of that. So I guess I, I guess I would say, um, uh, do I, be, yes, I think this is a part of health. I think for everyone that, that not putting a poison in your body is, is um, not just, you know, spiritually becoming more you, um, but it's actually um, moving towards health, you know, and, and, and absolutely our nervous system, in my opinion, <laughs> but, putting, but, but doesn't that make sense if you put a poison in your body that um, your body may want to reject that and may start doing everything it can uh, to set the alarms going? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's, this is a big part of where Sherry and I are going with this, with this mission that we're on. It's not just about, oh, did you cross this invisible line into alcoholism? And now, oh, alcohol is not good for you anymore. But yeah. for everybody else, it's fine. It's, it's not good for anybody. No. Because, you know, getting to this, this place of, of growth and health and happiness and peace, it's hard freaking work. Yeah. And anything you're doing to make your nervous system uh, right. you know, work, have to work harder. So, so by putting a poison in our body that we has to get filtered out, you're just doing yourself a disservice. So if you're unhappy and you only drink a little bit, gosh, I still think you should look at the alcohol as, as a possible contributing factor to your unhappiness and, and get that out of the way. Oh, huge. In fact, that's really, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I started in, you know, one of the many, um, but definitely one of them is that um, I kept drinking when I came home to, to relax or, you know, quote unquote, um, after a difficult day at work. And I realized, in fact, I wasn't able to metabolize all of these, um, this energy from my day at work and in dealing with trauma and attachment. Um, in fact, it, it was, it was really not allowing me to metabolize any of that because the drinking made it worse. Um, so what I thought and perceived as, um, yeah, I never thought it was helping me, let's be honest, but it was my go-to. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I realized how much worse it was, it was making things for sure. Yeah. I bet it would make your, your job a lot easier if, if people didn't lean on it as a crutch, um, again, whether they've crossed that line for, of addiction or not. And when we talk about prevention and improving the statistics, you know, we've had a hundred years or, or, you know, well more than a hundred years of trying to work on recovery from addiction. And the numbers are just as bad now as they were a hundred years ago. It's not, you know, generation after generation just keeps falling into the same trap. But if we, if we, if we call alcohol what it is and um, you know, just it's, it's one of these education things. There's so many things in our society that we're just poorly educated about. If we would just, we would just take the time to learn. And like you said, it's easy, but we've got to go hard and actually do it. Um, yeah. It and really take the shame out of it, you know, obviously, which is something you've been amazing at and been very helpful to me to really take, take the shame out of it and go hard uh, being, being you. I want to, I'm going to tell you, I, I don't know what the title of this episode is going to be, but I want to use go hard so bad, but I'm like a porno podcast. If I do that. That's probably get hard. Yeah, yeah, definitely not yeah. get hard. Yeah. Please no. I'm not going to go there. That's hilarious. We'll see when it comes out, how we've uh, massaged the title, but Catherine, just can't thank you enough for being here, not just on this podcast, but being a huge influence on our lives. We just love you to death. Um, the knowledge you're sharing is so, so, so important. What's interesting, this isn't brain surgery, is it? I mean, these seven yeah. things, like- you, Very you know, intuitive, very logical, makes sense, right? Yeah. But now we have the science to back it, though. I do think that's different, yeah. The science yeah. to back it, and we just got to believe it and get out there and do it. Yeah. But thank you, Matt I and Sherry. Oh, my God. This, you know, I don't even know where my life would be without the two of you. So thank you very much. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. 
No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.